Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I sit down with Dr. Peter Ballersted. We discuss the importance of ruminants on people and the planet. Ruminants are those animals included like cows, sheep, goats. We discuss how protein is calculated in plant products and what does the impact of these calculations on you as the consumer. We also discuss how Peter makes sense of the dietary guidelines and what he actually believes you should be doing for your own health and wellness. Dr. Peter Ballersted earned his bachelor's and master's degree at the University of Georgia and his doctorate at the University of Kentucky. He was the Forge Extension Specialist at Oregon State University. Peter is the current president of the American Forage and Grassland Council. What makes his perspective so unique is that he has re-examined the human diet and its impact on health. What he has learned doesn't agree with the advice given for the past several decades. Peter is an advocate for ruminant animal agriculture and the essential role of animal source foods in the human diet. He strives to build bridges between producers, consumers, and researchers across a wide variety of scientific disciplines. And as always, if you guys like this episode, please like, share, subscribe, send it out to your family and friends. Your support means the world. Let's jump right in. Thank you to Paleo Valley for sponsoring this episode of the show. I love that they sponsored this episode of the show because their beef sticks are absolutely amazing. And when we talk about ruminants, we are definitely talking about beef. Paleo Valley makes some of the best tasting fermented 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef sticks on the market. They use beef sourced from small domestic farms in the U.S. They use organic spices to flavor these beef sticks. Everything that they have and they use is non-GMO. They ferment their sticks, which creates a naturally occurring probiotic. And just quite personally, the texture of these sticks are absolutely phenomenal. Not only will you get protein, but you will also get vitamins and minerals, glutathione, CLA, again, bioavailable protein, omega-3 fatty acids. Who is this beef stick for? Anybody and everyone. My kids are obsessed. In fact, I have to hide my stash. If you guys are looking for a great snack, this is one to go to. Head on over to paleovalley.com slash Dr. Lion. You guys will absolutely love one of my most favorite products, Paleo Valley Beef Sticks. That's paleovalley.com slash Dr. Lion for 15% off. Thank you to Element for sponsoring this episode of the show. It is spelled L-M-N-T and pronounced Element. You guys have heard me talk all about hydration before. And I guarantee you that if you have got your lifestyle right, you are training and sweating. This is why I love Element because hydration is everything. And Element is an electrolyte drink mix with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, 
no junk, no added sugar, no fillers. It tastes great. It comes in very easy to travel with packets. So you can throw it in your bag, get ready to have it on the airplane, at the gym, you name it. And why is it important? Because hydration status, if you are depleted, if you are dehydrated, you can have headaches, muscle cramps, fatigue, you name it. You have probably felt the effects of dehydration. One of my favorite ways to rehydrate is Element. Head on over to drinkelement.com slash Dr. Lion. Again, that's drinkelement.com slash Dr. Lion. And this product is so good that if you don't like it, you will get a no questions asked refund. It's so good that if you don't like it, you will get a no questions asked refund. And in fact, when you order using my code, you will get to try eight flavors for free. You will get an eight sample pack for free. Dr. Peter Baller said, thank you so much for joining me. And I am really excited for this conversation. You have been coined, I don't know if this is a term that you called yourself, but the sod father of the ruminant. Is that true? Is that um, is well, that where I'm we're going? Well, not clever enough to come up with these things on my own. So yes, I've been given the title Don Pedro, the sod father of the Ruminati, and basically, I think the Ruminati came first, and maybe that was my suggestion. Um, basically, you know, it seems like we know a whole lot about this wondrous creature or family of creatures called ruminants and all that they do for us. And then I got involved in the metabolic health space. And so it seemed like there was a lot of information that we knew that others didn't. So ruminati. And uh, yeah, somebody gave me the moniker of Don Pedro at some point. So yeah, you know, we'll just <laughs> lean into it real hard. I I, I love that. What people I, I think don't know about you, um, and I'm sure you may be new to my audience in many ways, is that you really tie agricultural health with modern health. You also have a very interesting perspective that I value greatly. Your scientific contribution as it relates to speaking and really putting the information together in a way that we can understand is critical. And I've actually heard you speak. You do a phenomenal job. You're very entertaining, by the way, which is difficult for a scientist, <laughs> but you uh, really are outstanding in that way. Um, there's a few points that I, I really do want to talk about, but in one of your lectures that I saw you give, you mentioned how calories, that something can be isocaloric, but not isometabolic. And again, we have so much to cover in this episode, but what does that mean? Yeah. It's my attempt to say that we could have 100 calories coming from sugar, and in another diet, we could have 100 calories coming from animal fats. And those two diets aren't going to have the same metabolic effect on a human being. So, and that's partly the weakness of calories as a meaningful thing to talk about diets and define them. Um, but it is to say that, you know, sugar and starch will have an effect on insulin that fats won't. 
and yet we could get equivalent amounts of energy from both. And we live in a day where 70% of the calories in, in uh, Americans' diets are coming from ultra-processed foods. And, you know, 60-plus percent you could trace back to cereals, to sugar, and to industrial oils. Just those three are providing, you know, almost two-thirds, whatever, of our cal- – well, that maybe that's the problem. You know, it, 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 those aren't necessarily foods that humanity – evolved um, being exposed to. Yes, I, I would agree with you that the uh, majority of our diet is a plant-based, ultra-processed diet that can be very detrimental. Tell me a little bit about your journey. And what's interesting is that we don't often go into the journey of the scientist behind the information, but I am so curious as to how you came to be where you are now. Yeah, we'll try to cut this long story short. I just retired, so it could run for quite a while. Um, I I did not grow up in agriculture. Mm -hmm. I didn't grow up in an agricultural area. I grew up in suburban Lower Bucks County, which is just outside of Philadelphia. So a lot of that farmland had been or was being converted into you know, housing tracts. Um, but I quickly realized I'd rather live in the country than the city. And then it's so then that began the process that ultimately ended up with me studying forage agronomy and ruminant nutrition. So I became very interested what is in that. Wait, what is forage agronomy? No, you don't know. What uh, is that? So forage you is don't, the- you don't get to keep Keep going. Yes. Forage <laughs> agronomy. I have never heard of that. Okay. So agronomy is that branch of sciences dealing with agriculture. So soils and plant sciences, field management um, broadly. And then forages are those crops or those plants that we grow to be eaten by livestock. So aside from the threshable grain, you know, or seeds. So things like pasture hay silage, um, those are things that we talk about as forage crops. And, um, you know, being that I was involved in pasture management or growing hay or growing silage and those things, yeah, probably be worthwhile knowing something about ruminant nutrition because that's the primary consumer of those products. How do we define a ruminant? What is a ruminant? Uh, Ruminants. Um, Well, there wouldn't be modern humans without ruminants. Modern society is dependent on ruminants and we won't be able to meet the goals of 2050 unless we improve the productivity and efficiency of global ruminant animal agriculture. All that being said, um, ruminants are those animals with, we say, four stomachs um, that have pre-gastric fermentation. Um, So in other words, before, imagine you put three chambers in front of our stomach where we would have the microbial populations that actually break down the fiber. 
And they also do a really important thing of taking non-protein nitrogen or low, or low quality proteins and upcycling them to microbial protein that the host animal then harvests and provides us with meat and milk of highest nutritional quality. So their upcycling is a key link in our terrestrial ecosystems. So uh, we no vertebrate animal produces amylase, sorry, produces cellulase, which is the enzyme necessary to break down the bonds between the glucose units that make up cellulose, which is the most abundant carbohydrate in the biosphere. So that's entirely dependent that would be on grass, right? That would be a lot of fiber grass. in grass, the fiber in trees, um, plant fiber, if you will, the, the fiber that we're often told we must consume. Um, <laughs> that that substance is not directly utilizable by humans, but ruminants can and do utilize that resource. That's fascinating. What I'm hearing you say is that ruminant animals are animals with four, is it that they have four stomachs, whereas we are a monogastric animal, right? We have one stomach and we also have a, a vertebrae. What you're saying is that these animals are necessary for our survival and they would include things like cows. Cows, is, sheep, is bison a goats, as well? bison, buffalo. Mm. Um, the, the, I, I forget the exact number of ruminants in total. Um, but again, the, the evolution of ruminants predates the emergence of primates. And it makes sense. That's you think about a transition of the ecosystem from dense forest to mixed forest grassland savanna uh, to full grassland. And these were the animals that were utilizing the grasses. And then the carnivores were utilizing the ruminants. And one theory would have us be, first of all, the scavenger that then over time evolved into an apex predator. Again, a grassland ha doesn't have high quality protein being produced by the plants, and grasslands don't have rich sources of fat from the plants. We have to have the animals in place right. that do that production and conversion. Absolutely. And that is why, or one of the reasons why ruminants are so essential for human health is that as an upcycler, what you're saying is they eat marginal land or they eat um, off the land that is full of cellulose, of things that are not able to be consumed by a human. They take this, the gut microbiome within one of their many stomachs, I can't imagine being a, a ruminant, I would be very bloated, many stomachs, they upcycle this through the gut microbiome. The gut microbiome then provides amino acids and other nutrients to allow for them to be able to be grow and become animal meat for human consumption. 
Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I just um, pulled out the slide from Barry Groves' presentation from years ago, um, where you look at the difference between ingest and digest. You know, you are not what you eat, you are what your body does with what you eat. And um, in, in Groves' uh, original slide, he had two groups of mammals. He had a, sh a sheep, a cow, and a mountain gorilla in one group. And then he had a human being and a lion and a polar bear in the second group. And the question is, which is designed to digest a low-fat diet? And the point is that there's a difference between ingest and digest. Neither one of them digests a low-fat diet. The, the ruminant will eat a high fiber, low fat, and poor protein quality diet from the forage. And then through, as you said, the rumen the, the, and the first two stomachs, the microbes will do the degradation of the fiber. They will produce volatile fatty acids. So the fat content of the diet is something like no more than 6%. But at the end, well over 60% of her energy is going to come from the fatty acids that she absorbs from her gut as a result of microbial fermentation. And then the protein, any, any nitrogenous material that can be degraded in the rumen, hopefully the vast majority of that will be captured by microbes and form microbial protein, which then when it reaches the acidic stomach and then through the intestines, just like we do with protein, that, that breakdown uh, and absorption takes place. And so, um, but even, so the vast majority of agricultural land um, I put quotes around that because people confuse agricultural land and arable land. And they think that agricultural land could all support the production of crops. And, and the fact is that the arable land is the land which can be tilled. And it's, a, it's by far a small portion of the overall agricultural land. So there's a lot of agricultural land that is perhaps only but certainly best suited for grazing long-term cover with with communities of plants that then ruminants can graze and produce meat milk fiber other benefits and in fact the health of those biomes requires grazing or burning i'd rather graze it um, but at the same time even when we produce a crop like corn or wheat over half of the biomass that that crop represents is inedible by humans. And so even on cropland, we have an integration of livestock into our cropping systems. And that happens in a lot of ways. So they're, a, they're, they're an absolutely essential part of our cropping systems today, globally, and clearly they're going to look different in different parts of the world. So let me ask you this. You're talking a lot about and very interested in animal well-being as it relates to agriculture, agronomy, uh, what is the word? Agronomy. Agronomy mm -hmm. and um, ruminant health. But how and why should the listener care about all this? Because the listener is like, well, number one, I'm not a ruminant. And number two, maybe I'm not so interested in farming. 
where is the intersection between ruminants and human health? And what are you hoping to deliver to the world? So I got my degree, my final degree, 1986. So I've been in this space for a while. But in 2007, I realized I was a 51-year-old balding, obese, pre-diabetic. And I found a lifestyle intervention that emphasized protein and animal source protein and taught me that I need not fear the fat that comes along with those foodstuffs that provide the animal source protein. And so I now call that metabolic health. I call that therapeutic carbohydrate reduction. Um, and so, yeah, today I'm just balding, right? Um, the, <laughs> so. No, actually, and I really encourage people to listen to some of your lectures because you really bring up this, this point about that, again, not all proteins are created equal, but also crude protein is different than other sources of protein and perhaps what we're getting wrong and how things are becoming very confusing as it relates to this integration of and maintenance of animal products into our diet. Yeah. And I, I think you really do an exceptional job at, at speaking to things of that nature. Well, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate that. Um, no charge. <laughs> um, good. <laughs> Um, so I, I had that personal experience. So what are some of, listen, so what are some of the shortcomings? What are some of the shortcomings of the research as it relates to a more plant-based approach? Well, first of all, humanity's- In the understanding. Yeah. Humanity's diet is already plant-based and that clearly is causing harm to human beings. There's, we have such high quality and abundant evidence of human beings being harmed by too little animal source food in their diet. And anything that speaks to this narrative of being harmed by too much, <laughs> yet it's very prevalent, <laughs> but it's all based on the weakest quality evidence that we have of nutritional epidemiology of chronic disease. And when, but people don't think about that because they hear the story that says studies show. <laughs> well, no, it didn't show. <laughs> it established some kind of relationship. Okay. And, and, and so, of course, that makes the news. And I just got another one to respond to in, in, you know, messaging. And it's like, this is really getting tiresome, but apparently it's necessary. Um, so I'm, I'm saying that humanity's existential crisis is insufficient animal source food. And we can see this. We can see this in children who are stunted due to a lack of the essential nutrients that are best provided, perhaps solely provided by animal source food in their diet. And stunting is not merely stature, although it is that. It's brain development. And so these human beings aren't going to be able to achieve their potential because that's going to last their whole lifetime. If you miss those critical stages of development, you can't make it up. And so this is just really, really, really important um, and little appreciated. So um, one of the key things that 
I, I remember the moment when one particular person, oh, I'll name him, Dave Feldman, we were having a meal and, and uh, that moment when he realized that when you see protein on a food label or in a food table, that's actually a value that we in animal nutrition call crude protein, but we in human nutrition just call it protein. And, and so then people spend a lot of time counting and tracking and whatever. And there's so many problems with that. But crude protein is an estimate of the protein that's in a food or feed. It dates back to what, the 1880s or something? When did proximate analysis start? Way back then. And Basically, it is we determine the nitrogen content in a food or feed sample. We multiply that percent nitrogen by 6.25 as a value to convert it into crude protein. And we're doing that assuming that all the nitrogen that was there was in protein, and all that protein was 16% nitrogen. Well, that kind of sort of works with ruminants. Again, because ruminants can utilize non-protein nitrogen, but monogastrics like us and like other swine, I'm not comparing us to swine, but they're a, <laughs> they're, they are a, an acceptable model for human digestion. So, but though monogastrics cannot utilize non-protein nitrogen, plant source foods are going to have more non-protein nitrogen than animal source foods. And then that's before we ever get to think about things like the digestibility of the true protein that is provided by both or the um, amino acid profiles of the protein that we can absorb from animal source and plant source foods. So by the time you get done with all that, then you can find a paper that says, you know, these ounce equivalents that the dietary guidelines are based on have never been demonstrated to be equivalent in any way. Oh, can you give me an example? Give me an example of that. Well, so if if you look, so they say, you know, what, and I, I could I could find if I was quick enough the exact slide that I used. Um, let's see. Here we go. <clears throat> so, come on, open up. <clears throat> Uh, an ounce of meat um, is equivalent to a cooked egg, is equivalent to a quarter cup of red kidney beans, a tablespoon of peanut butter, two ounces of tofu, half an ounce of mixed nuts. Those are their ounce equivalents that they say that you can use to construct a diet. Um, so just hang with us because this is really important information. So basically the ounce equivalent of peanut butter to a kidney bean to an ounce of red meat, the dietary guidelines determined that these were equivalent based on, you're saying protein. Protein, yes. they were saying that these proteins are interchangeable and you can use this interchangeable chart to build a diet. And you're saying that that is completely missing the mark because the non-nitrogen con containing um, the non-protein non nitrogen. nitrogen. Mm -hmm. So basically, to, to really simplify this for the listener or the viewer is that if they were to take a look at the back of a 
a protein bar that's made from, I don't know, red bean or whatever it is, or uh, I don't know, take your pick, some kind of plant-based source that it will say protein, but what you're saying is there is potential non-protein nitrogen in that label. Is that true or no? It will only be put... Okay. So explain that because this is really important. So basically what Peter is saying is that from a dietary guideline, from an understanding to the consumer that forward facing, we have equated all of these things as interchangeable and equal, even to the point of it being on the back of a label saying this protein bar has 10 grams of dietary protein when some of this protein is actually non-protein nitrogen. Correct. Correct. Is that right? Yep. Absolutely. And, and, and so, and there's more here that we could suss out. Um, but first of all, so a quarter of the nitrogen that's in potatoes for example, and this is just one that I know, we could find others, um, is non-protein nitrogen. So any protein that would be listed for a potato, right? a quarter of that isn't in fact protein. And if you look at green leafy vegetables that are going to have a high nitrate content, nitrate's going to be converted via this nitrogen percentage and then convert that into crude protein, that's going to be expressed as part of the, don't mention it, crude protein that's listed in the tables or the labels. Okay. Then on top of that- This is a problem. Yes, it's a major problem. And then then you can see the variability because if you look in a good food table- you should somewhere see the number of values that went into producing the mean value that's stated for that food item, whatever the nutrient value is, right? So, and this is a problem when we get to low and middle income countries where you have a very limited number of samples that went in to make the value that's now being used to do food supply calculations. Plant source foods vary far more than animal source foods in terms of their composition. And, and so I went and dug out values for from a database, I think it was 6,000 soybean samples. And the protein value in soybeans varied something like 10% plus or minus. Well, they're not doing interesting. A, they're not doing a recalculation for every batch. <laughs> so they're going to make, you know, they're going to use and and plus they have a plus or minus cuz you know, they they need to be given some grace in terms of the value. So there's bounds around what they say the value is on the label. And then there's the variability that comes in just from the products coming in. Um I started in 86 and we were doing a lot of work and we still are trying to teach dairymen especially, but beef producers as well, to sample the hay that they are feeding their animals so that they can know what its nutritive value is because feed is a very uh, large expense. And we want to make sure that we're getting best value. Um, well, 
a lot of hay, you know, as an amount, a, a unit of hay, is that hay that comes from the same field that was planted to the same variety, harvested the same time, right? One harvest, one field planted to the same thing. That's a lot. And we can sample that because we see the variability even from cutting to cutting. And and so- But now this, that's for ruminants. Right. So sorry to interrupt you. Sorry to interrupt you. So the, the variability <laughs> based on- <laughs> Well, <laughs> good to know. Good to know. Um, the delay doesn't help anything, but the the uh, the variability in the quality and the protein non protein containing nitrogen in the hay. Why why does a human care about that? Because ultimately, the ruminant eats the ruminant produces a very standard amino acid profile meat, which doesn't. I mean, it might vary. It might vary in some of its phyto. I don't phytonutrient composition is the wrong word. Maybe. Um, I don't know, maybe some variability in low molecular weight molecules, but the amino acid composition of cow, of beef, of bison is in, in extraordinarily consistent, which makes it amazing. But how does this, let's say individuals begin to go more plant-based and you had mentioned that really who suffer you know, it's not necessarily the older individual, which I argue would, they totally suffer from a muscle mass perspective, from all kinds of perspective, but really the unintended consequences of this concept of moving away from high quality protein really affects our youth. And it affects the youth, not just in the United States, but globally. And that is, in my opinion, a crisis. How does it affect our youth specifically? Are we talking about a leucine deficiency? Are we talking about lysine? Are we talking about methionine? Are we talking about these different three amino acids? Or are we talking about bioavailable iron and other vitamins and minerals? What In the hierarchy of thinking about it, what are we talking about? Yeah. So it's not just the youth, although clearly they're one of the vulnerable populations. Um, and the industry has been for too long referring to itself as protein industry. And various people, myself included, have been encouraging them to move away from that and just own the fact that you're a meat company <laughs> or industry. Um, because I understand why we're there, but we need to move on. Protein is clearly a critical issue, but so are all the other nutrients that are best or solely sourced. So one of the statistics, I believe it was from UNICEF, and I believe it goes something like uh, the WHO says that the best source of the high quality nutrients that children six to 24 months of age require are meat, eggs, dairy, seafood. And UNICEF says that 60% of children six to 24 months of age globally don't get meat, eggs, dairy, seafood. Repeat that. That is really important. Say that again for me. So the WHO tells us that um, for, child for children six to 24 months of age, meat, eggs, dairy, seafood are the best source of the nutrients that they require for proper development. UNICEF says that only 60% of the, 
of children globally, six to 24 months of age, get meat, eggs, dairy, seafood in their diet. So there's- 60%. That, that, that 60% do not get meat, eggs, dairy, seafood. So the again, people tell us we're supposed to be plant-based. Well, I'm not sure how much more they're advocate. Well, I have a suspicion, <laughs> but, but you know, for I want to hear the suspicion because, yeah, yeah, I I think it's an advocacy for a a a, a plant only diet, and and there is no foundation for the belief that a plant only diet will be good for human health and flourishing on a global scale, and there is really no justification for saying that that's going to make a meaningful difference in terms of emissions from agriculture. And in fact, if we look at the burden of the healthcare industry in terms of its impacts economically, societally, or environmentally, one could make the case that improving metabolic health, lowering the requirement or the burden of these chronic diseases, and therefore lack lowering the need for the healthcare, could in fact have a significant, more significant impact on these common metrics of sustainability. So one person um, looked at. Well, there's there's one paper that looks at the emissions from the U.S. healthcare industry, and the the conclusion was something along the lines of the U.S. healthcare industry is a significant source of pollution, including 10 percent of greenhouse gas emissions, anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. <clears throat> now, U.S. EPA says that all of agriculture is somewhere around 9% and, ag and animal agriculture is somewhere around 4%. Now, that's not an apples to apples comparison and you should always be concerned about how they did that. You know, So for the former healthcare estimate, they said, well, how much energy does healthcare consume? So they weren't, you know, Whereas EPA says energy is one bucket, and they look at that. Um, the healthcare estimate said how much food is served. Well, okay, so there, whatever that number is, it's significant, and we don't talk about it. Um, there, there was another uh, assessment of the impact of the pharmaceutical industry uh, globally. And it came to the conclusion that it was a significant emitter and greater variability um, than in other industries. And from those data, uh, a colleague made the estimate that if the average um, adult American with type 2 diabetes could eliminate their medication use, they would reduce their carbon footprint 29% more than if they shifted from a high meat to a vegan diet. There was an estimate uh, looking well, at basically. What thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. With all this talk about ruminants and beef and macronutrients, I thought it would be amazing to highlight an addition to any program, and that is collagen protein. 
Collagen is a protein found in every single joint, tendon, bone, and ligament in the body and is crucial to strengthening and keeping all those tissues healthy. Now, can you get collagen in a beef form as in when you are eating a cut of beef? You can. However, there is some evidence to suggest adding additional collagen is great for hair, skin, and nails, even gut integrity. First Form makes a great collagen. It is a low-temperature processed hydrolyzed collagen powder, meaning it is high quality. It is bioavailable. It is very, very easy to mix. They even add in 50 milligrams of something called Dermaval, which is a phytonutrient-rich complex that increases and helps maintain healthy levels of elastin in the body. So there's a whole host of reasons why you could and should be adding collagen to your program. Head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion for your very own collagen. That's firstform.com. Thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. With all of this talk Peter and I are doing on metabolic health, you should definitely know your numbers like your triglyceride levels, your insulin, your hemoglobin A1C, your fasting blood sugar. You, my friend, can get this at insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. And if you check out their store, they are offering my listeners 20% off. It is so important to know your blood levels because how you feel is not necessarily how you are. So getting a great baseline as to what is truly happening under the hood within your body is essential and even critical to overall health and wellness. When you go to Inside Tracker, you will get a daily action plan that has personalized guidance on nutrition, exercise, supplementation. They even have something called the Inner Age 2.0 plan. And this will give you a calculation of your true biological age to see how you are aging from the inside out. In fact, if you're wondering, I'm 25. No, just kidding, but I wish. For a limited time only, you will get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. So, so basically, pardon the interruption, basically you're saying that there's a lot of smokescreen happening, that this idea that we should reduce our high-quality consumption of animal-based products is a smokescreen for a much bigger issue, which is metabolic health and perhaps... Um, you know, uh, environmental ways, whether it's use of transportation, electricity, or uh, et cetera, may be even more impactful. Is is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely. There, the um, one okay. one study looked at what would happen if we eliminated animal agriculture from the United States. How what impact would that have? And what they came to as a conclusion was that it would be somewhere less than two and a half percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, anthropogenic greenhouse gas That's emissions right. from the United States, and it would be less than half a percent globally. Okay, if the U.S. did that, but they said so. It makes you so. It makes us think that Meatless Monday is a bit of a joke. Absolutely, and not only that, the idea of a Meatless Monday, but also what about the impact that that has from a cognitive standpoint for our children? 
as it relates to being able to grow up and have food flexibility. I, I think that these are, are really critical, critical uh, things that we have to pay attention to. So let me ask you this, from the a historical perspective, um, where is kind of like, or where are the origins of carbohydrate restriction? I, I re- What I really want to take away, and, and I think you do this very elegantly, is what, you know, what should people be eating? How can we think about it? What are, you know, what is some of the historical perspectives of carbohydrate restriction? I think that you've done a really good job at looking at where the ruminants are, where that kind of plays a role as it relates to upcycling, upscaling, that would be interesting, upcycling nutrition for humans. But what about this, yeah, historical origins of, of kind of carbohydrate restriction? You know, I've heard you talk about the current food system and how it's going to impact people. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about some of the the real action items that people can begin to place. Well, I guess I, you know, I, I would certainly um, refer to what you recommend in terms of how much protein do we need? Now, I would come and say, okay, so we need to make sure we're talking about protein, not, not protein in air quotes, right? Um, and, and that we need not fear the fat that comes with that. And I would suggest that people eat that first <laughs> at their meals and then, you know, if, you know, they want to add some non-starchy vegetables, you know, that uh, as, as part of that meal, certainly that's fine. Um, I'm, I'm absolutely going to suggest that we look for added sugar that we put on versus and then additional sugar that's added to the foods that we're consuming, um, you know, the various different names for sugar, because right? <laughs> you could look at the label and say, oh, sugar is the fifth. Yeah, but the three before it were another form of sugar, right? They just OSE at the end of it and so that now they can list them separately. Um, in addition, I'm, I, I, I would suggest that um, people look to the degree that they can at eating together, right? Mealtime used to be a time of social interaction. And now we've broken it, and we're going to eat on the run, and 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 those things. But uh, the 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 first published diet that I'm aware of was Banting back in the 18 what was it 80s, something like that. And and here you know he was um, somebody who had his own personal experience. Um, when you look at how heavy he was and compared to today, he probably wouldn't have been all that remarkable today in terms of obesity, but he was for the time. And he discovered from uh, Europeans that he could eat foods that he had been told he was supposed to avoid. And he was exercising to the best of his ability at that time. And he discovered that he lost weight effortlessly. And this was published. That's banting in some countries, in some languages, to bant is the verb meaning to diet. And so he's one of those few people whose names has become a verb. Um, and and then you can look throughout the, the history in Europe pro- up till 
World War One, and then the interwar period, Germany and Austria was the seat of science in the world, and work was being done there. I just listened to Gary Taubes give a presentation on the history of obesity and talking about the science, and then World War Two destroys that community of research. And it comes, some of it gets to come to the United States, but much of their findings were disregarded. And somehow it became this psychological issue rather than a physiological issue. Yeah. And 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 then, you know, we, we have what comes after. Um, in the 50s, we had an influential individual who promoted the idea that it was fat in the diet that caused heart disease. There was a scientific controversy. He was ascendant because of politics, not because of evidence. That then became the basis, along with a certain environmental ethos that was developing at the time, Mm -hmm. counterculture, all that came in. Um, Diet for a Small Planet was a very popular book along along with uh, Population Bomb. You know, these were influential. So they, they had an effect on the culture and that then showed up in the policy. Um, you know, di- uh, f- uh, Diet for a Small Planet, Francis Moore LePay was cited in the Senate subcommittee report. <laughs> she, I, Peter, I have to say that you're, the, the point that you're bringing up is this idea that Eating has never been about eating. Health and wellness has never been about simply food. It is deeply ingrained in political agenda. It is deeply ingrained in, um, you know, things other, you know, morality, things other than actually simply nutrition and wellness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I actually write about a little bit about the history of Diet for a Small Planet and Sylvester Graham and uh, how that became the graham cracker. And one of the things that he really highlighted was that we should be eating uh, to be better humans and we should be moral. And one of the things that, you know, we should abstain from sex and and not eat meat and I don't think drink alcohol and uh, be a, a very certain way. And that's ultimately where the, the graham cracker, Kellogg um, became a fan and, and made the graham cracker. But I'm kind of digressing into this history. If you were to say, um, this is the amount of dietary protein I think is acceptable and adequate, where would you put adequate versus optimal? And and what (laughs) kind of protein? Do you even think about plant sources of protein as you would even consider that protein? Or or how do you think about it? Because I do know that people likely ask you these questions. What do you consider adequate protein uh, for an individual versus optimal. And what does that look like? And then the other thing is, you also mentioned a statement where you said you stopped really fearing fat. And uh, I'm, I'm curious as to what you meant by that and, and where you think uh, fat consumption is. Is it, is it added in the form of polyunsaturated? Are we going to be added adding in monounsaturated? Although those listeners that are very savvy know that um, almost 50% of the fat in beef is monounsaturated, almost, um, maybe almost 50%. But anyway, tell me about what you would consider adequate dietary protein. What does that look like? Well, again, um, people such as yourself, people like 
the 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 man that you got to study under um others who <laughs> Donald are Lehman, yes. yeah, others who are you know doing that work a big part of what i do is i'm just trying to be a pipe right convey information from one source to another but the idea that 0.8 grams per kilogram would be the target because too many people treat the RDA as if it's a target rather than a minimum. And you can see this in the literature when they talk about food supplies, right? That they, they, they look for, and then they'll say we're over consuming, right? Um, and so that's, uh, that's the minimal amount we need to avoid disease. Others would say it needs to be somewhere north of 1.2 grams per kilogram. And then others point to the fact that there's a real high ceiling for safety. So we don't need to worry. I don't think we've found it. Yeah. We haven't found it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's there. Which I'm sure. Like mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's there. But, I'm sure it exists, um, but we, we have not seen it. Yeah, so that tells me and and then I'm sorry I'm going to digest I mean digress. Um, we've got this. You can digest too. Thank you. I'm um, with that brother. <laughs> we've got in the 2015 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee report. They were showing NHANES data, and they looked at protein, and what the data itself said was that. 40% of Americans aren't getting enough, 40% of adult Americans aren't getting enough, and most females over the age of eight aren't getting enough protein in their diet. And that's with them considering 0.8 grams per kilogram, the target, as well as considering plant and animal anim uh, protein as if it's equivalent. Both of those are not valid assumptions, yet that's how bad it is, even with those assumptions. And then they're able to say protein is not a nutrient of concern. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's shocking. Yeah. It's shocking. Yeah. And it's shocking. Listen, I would love, Peter, to tell you the truth, I would love to not be talking about protein anymore. And people ask you know, why I'm still doing it. This is exactly why. Until we see some some change in the guidelines, whether, uh, you know, the evidence is coming out, obviously, that double the RDA, which by the way, you guys, RDA at 0.8 grams per kg equals 0.37 grams per pound. 0.37 grams per pound. That is so low if you were to do the math of whatever that looks like. I mean, we could do the math here. Oh, my phone is off. But if you were to calculate what that looks like, it is disgustingly low. Mm -hmm. At 0.37 grams per kg, when the data supports double that as more of an optimal range, we're still kind of arguing this case of, you know, should you have protein? Should you not? And then, quote, people are saying we're eating too much clearly that that is not true. And when we are thinking about what is it going to take to really move the needle, I'm, I'm not sure. I actually think it's going to be get, it's going to become more difficult versus less difficult. When it relates to carbohydrates, do you think that there is a carbohydrate threshold? Have you, have you thought much about that? Um, again, uh, obviously you can say no, and I'm, yeah. I'm going to calculate this number here. Yeah. But. I, I think that's 
part of this tremendous individuality. So my mother was 43 years old when she had me in 1956. So 43 would be an advanced age, I'm sorry, for someone today, right? Let alone then. And part of that was she was driven by the desire to not have an only child since she had been one. Uh, and so my brother was born six years earlier. There were a few miscarriages between the two. Uh, my memory of my mother is always of a heavy Pennsylvania German woman. Um, and so I, I, you know, my, my wheelchair physician diagnosis here is that she was probably dealing with gestational diabetes for most of these. And so I have no problem believing that I got, you know, in, in, in beef, we talk about fetal imprinting, uh, in humans, we talk about what is it? Epigenetics. So, okay. Same, same. There's something happened to me in utero that then makes me more sensitive to carbohydrate in my diet than others. I have no problem believing that. And so we probably have to find those things individually. We have wonderful tools now that we can use in this country, you know, continuous glucose monitors. Heck, you can even get a home read A1C test now that you can do. Um, so, so those sorts of things can help us. Um, as well as you know, more sophisticated diagnostic tests. Um, but what's clear is we are still consuming weight. I, I think I think sugar is the third leading source of calories in humanity's diet after wheat and rice. Is that globally? Yes. Is that globally? Yes, globally. in humanity's food. You know, I, I, I'm curious. I'm curious, Peter. You, you, again, you may you kind of like drop the bombs of some of this stuff. What are your top one or two misconceptions that the general public has about the current food system? Just what are these misconceptions? One or two. Just give me one or two. Well, that just what we've been covering, that that plant source plant sources of nutrition are equivalent to animal sources of nutrition right so that you can just swap them in and out whether you do that on a mass basis or whether you do that you you try to find uh, you know equivalent amounts of from both they they they're not um and and so that's number 1 um number 2 is that you could have this either or kind of approach where there's there's actually in some universe the possibility of animal free agriculture right that's not possible um and not possible and and there are things that you know we could go into a greater depth there um for those of us in in the US i want to encourage people and this is a frequent topic to, to not feel like you have to spend more for the animal source foods that you can get at your grocery store, right? By going to some upscale market or other source to get them, right? That I, I you know, label claims or something that I 
have been known to rail against from time to time. I, in you know, especially as we start thinking about a population, right? Ninety-five uh, percent of the world's vegetarians are economic vegetarians. They're not philosophical vegetarians. What is that? They can't what afford it. They can't afford it. It's not available to them. They would if they could. Um, and so one of the things that I, I hear and I'm wondering about, and I have no expertise to delve into it, but people say that as humanity combats poverty and as people be- as populations become more prosperous, they want more animal source food. Okay. They can afford it. I wonder at times, and I'm not an economist and I don't know, but what if it's not an effect but has some causal relationship? In other words, if the availability of the animal source food becomes greater, does that lead to more prosperous societies? And one of the things I can look at and I'm still wondering about is in colonial North America, when people visited colonial North America, they were amazed at the amount of game and animal source foods from farming that were being consumed daily, multiple times a day. And one of the things that happened is the height of people in colonial America increased and that's seen as an indicator of nutritional status for the population. Post Well, if that's the case, then I'm definitely been undernutritioned. That uh, notice I said population, <laughs> not individual, right? <laughs> um, Mom and Dad, what have you done to me? Anyway, yeah, I, I yes. heard it said that yes, people I get into people get into genealogy so they can figure out who to blame. Um, <laughs> in the in in the Netherlands after World War II, because they went through a fair amount of deprivation as a result of the occupation and the war, but afterwards they really emphasized dairy consumption in their population. And again, association does improve causation, but perhaps it's interesting that they're one of the tallest populations in the world now you start replacing real dairy with plant juice beverages and who knows what's going to happen. You know, you take wheat, which is a poor source of protein for humanity, and it's the single largest source of protein in humanity's diet. Cereals as a group is larger than all our animal source foods combined. Now you take wheat per diast, the digestible indispensable amino acid score, it's somewhere around 50 for an adult. We get better at digesting it as we age. It's lower for children. Um, but then nobody eats wheat berries, right? We, we, we process that into some other substance. If we make whole wheat bread out of it, the diast score for that is now in the 20s. If we make a brown crispy breakfast cereal out of it, it's essentially zero. Okay, I'm not advocating for the consumption of breakfast cereal, but if you put real dairy on that, there's sufficient lysine provided by the dairy to to compensate for the lack of lysine in the breakfast cereal. But what happens, again, if we put nut juice on it? Well, we don't know. Right, we we don't have that. We we have some of the data. More is coming, but we have reason to suspect 
that it's not going to overcome the lysine deficiency from the cereal. And so, yeah, I'd very much and like- for, And not to do, and just to mention, um, so lysine, what Peter is talking about is one of the essential amino acids. And ultimately what we think about is one of the limiting amino acids as it relates to diet quality, whether it's lysine, leucine, or methionine, they're all- they're all thought to be limiting as it relates to the quality of um, protein in the diet. And lysine is one of those essential amino acids that is limiting. Um, and, you know, we don't really talk about lysine, uh, or at least I don't, but but you do. Do we know what the recommended amount of lysine per day is as a minimum to prevent deficiency? Someone does. It's not a number I have in my mind. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I, I don't actually know that number either. So I have a question for you. There are very fine scientists that I really respect, and um, some of them have uh, begun to publish work that will show a, um, a, a group of those individuals getting plant-based proteins, albeit they're shakes, and so they can be kind of manipulated, but plant-based proteins and they're relating it to, say, a whey protein. And what they're finding is that when protein is high enough, that there's no difference in muscle mass. So again, these are obviously younger individuals. And maybe even, you know, this one study that I'm thinking of is, is younger individuals that when protein is above the RDA, closer to 1.6 grams per kilogram, that it doesn't really matter where you're going to get your protein source because when they looked at the data, they said, okay, well, the strength gains or the muscle mass uh, stability and growth was the same. What would your response to that be? Again, we're, I'm concerned about global population and, you know, protein shakes are not going to, you know, just like cultured meat is not going to be a solution to low and middle income countries where the majority of humanity lives. Um, Number two, the the consumption of these ultra processed foods, which you know it's hard to think of something more processed than um, you know consuming an isolate. Um, I, I'm not a fan of. Um, I understand why some you know athletes or you know maybe uh, if somebody is convalescing, but then I'm concerned about what isn't there. Again, we're talking about protein. I agree with you. But we we have, you know, data that says if you're consuming less than 50% of your protein from animal source foods, you're likely to see other nutrient deficiencies showing up. You know, if you're consuming less than 30% of your calories from animal source foods, you're likely to see other nutrient deficiencies showing up. We're at 30% in the United States now. You know, the, 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 what, a fifth of women of childbearing age in U.S. are anemic, right? So, so again, I understand the argument and I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, there was a paper, uh, you know, basically I'm saying that animal source foods is going to be part of most people's diet to varying amounts. Right, and it acts as a as a way to balance the 
imbalanced amino acid profiles of other substances in the diet. And, and that's one of the great things that we can now do. So, you know, the majority of our, what, human beings have eaten anything that didn't eat them first, right? So we can consume, we're, we're obviously very adaptable. Um, some people, though, find that some items in the diet cause them problems and, and they should be encouraged to find, you know, you know, start, you know, try eliminating things. And, and maybe a way to do that is to eat meat only for a period of time, see if their symptoms improve. You're not going to harm your health by doing that. And then if you find afterwards that, okay, my symptoms have improved, do I want to add in back in some of those foods? Do so in a controlled, monitored way and watch to see if any of that comes back. And if you can eat it without problem, fine. Um, and, and you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that I don't have to struggle with some of the things that I know people who do. Uh, it, it makes it much easier for me. You know, I can eat away from home. I know people who virtually, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. they, they basically can only eat what they can prepare at home because they have sensitivities that, they can't be right. sure that, you know, the establishments or the uh, grocery store food processors are paying as close attention to. So uh, to your point, yes, uh, I'm, I'm, but getting to 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight leads us to a very different conversation about the food system necessary to supply it. And right now, we still have people who are believing that we're consuming too much when we're below that level, or they're making models about, you know, what we need to produce enough to feed to a lower level. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's really important for people to understand, again, that RDA is a target. It's a minimum, sorry, it's a minimum, not a target. And that and and there was a paper that came out i believe in 2018 where they basically looked at like a hundred and some odd low income countries and territories and they looked at the 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 protein supply and when you looked at that and you used that low you know minimum level they oh look only two or three here at the low end only the very poorest you know, or are below that. But when they went to the level of saying, what's the utilizable lysine supply? And they found that none of them met the target. So you went from three to a hundred plus. It's just, and, and, and um, one, one person I spoke to said, well, let's think about the, you know, famine relief that we send to places. You know, well, what are we sending? Oh, we're sending soy protein. Oh, is that the best? Why don't we send them culturally appropriate dried meat that they could add into whatever, you know, cereal sort of thing that they're doing? Um, you know, we, we, we have people who have shown that an egg a day can make a meaningful difference in the development of a child. 
in terms of their scholastic ability, yeah, <clears throat> social interaction scores. I mean, this is not a heavy lift. <laughs> it's not a heavy lift. I agree with you. And really the, the concept of adding in more high quality protein, despite what people are hearing, uh, really the goal is to clear it up with evidence-based information. This is not you know, Peter and I didn't chat about this, like, oh, hey, this is our agenda. It really is looking at some of these compelling arguments with high quality scientific evidence available and understanding some of the realities of this that, you know, a significant portion of humanity, which Peter, you say this, suffers from inadequate consumption of animal foods in their diet. Um, animal foods are a luxury to most people. And that Number two, there is insufficient evidence to support this recommendation of reducing animal source foods. Um, that is true. And this is even important in high-income countries, right? There is insufficient evidence to support the recommendation of reducing animal foods. And three, dietary interventions focused on reducing processed carbohydrates and um, a, a ensuring sufficient uh, animal products show the great promise in eliminating some of this chronic disease burden. Again, these are your kind of working realities and objectives. And then, you know, finally, this that grassland and ruminant animal agriculture are critical components of a sustainable food system and, and global development, um, which is really important to understand more so now than ever, because it's really as if ruminant animal and livestock has become the scapegoat for all things. And I don't know exactly why that is. It's so bizarre mm. because again, I have nothing vested in ruminant animals or agriculture in that way, but the amount of misinformation is almost, it's shocking. Um, and what's even more shocking is that the the way in which the um, media drives decision making for families, we have to do better. We have to do better, think more, mm. um, if we want to change anything. I, I think growing awareness of who's involved in the conversation, right? That that there are all these different players that have been around for a very long time. But, you know, the other day it occurred to me to look it up. I think it's like three quarters of advertising revenue for media comes from pharmaceuticals. So who whose side no, I had of, no idea. Whose side of the story are they going to promote? Um, you know, animal agriculture is producing what in many ways is a commodity, right? Versus correct. And and so there really isn't the space for somebody to come in and do value add to that to create the margin that then allows them to you know profit handsomely or whatever. And then you've got sh shelf life and all those other issues that are involved versus somebody who can take the commodity of you know corn and process it into some other thing that then they can you know market I, I remember saying is someone saying that you know you 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 take 
broccoli and there's not a lot of margin in broccoli, but you take broccoli and you <laughs> and you concoct a low fat cheese sauce to put on top of it and freeze it. And now you've got something that you can market, especially when you have people saying you need to eat low fat and low cholesterol and low sodium and you know whatever else that they can figure. Um so and and, and by the way and 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 sorry, but by the way, let's just define what a commodity is for the listener. Commodity is a whole food. So it's a whole food that is unprocessed. So a commodity would be, just as Peter said, soy, corn, egg, milk, beef versus a processed food would be, I don't know, pick your almond juice or pick your Beyond Burger or uh, whatever this kind of broccoli with fake cheese sauce, these are all mm. processed foods and commodities collectively have a marketing budget of, you know what, $750 million collectively. Yeah. All of these food products collectively versus Pepsi Cola, which is just one um, monster in the um, space processed food <laughs> industry space, right, has a marketing budget alone of $1.9 or higher billion dollars. Yeah. That's a, that's, and that is one yeah. company. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, that, not that's to mention, awesome. I'm going to say, <laughs> not to mention, Peter, you and I are about to play a, a game. It's going to be like a, um, a, a talk show game. I'm going to say a food and you're going to tell me what the advertising behind oh, that geez. food is. Okay. Ready? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got this. Okay. Or I'll, I'll answer it for you, but, but let's see if you can do it for me. Okay. Ready? So I'm going to say milk yeah. and you're going to say, does a body good. Oh, got it. I see what you're saying. I'm yeah. going to say, yep. okay, now I'm going to say this is, now this is marketing under USDA meaning you guys have to understand that there are restrictions as to how these whole foods can market themselves mm -hmm. and what they can say. For example, we've all heard of milk does a body good, mm -hmm. and that is all that it can say mm. versus it cannot say that milk is a better source of calcium than um, X, Y, and Z. It can't say uh, anything disparaging against another mm. processed food. So now I'm going to say beef and you're going to say- It's what's for dinner. What's for dinner? What's for dinner? But beef cannot say beef, this, this beef. And by the way, it's beef collectively. You don't even know about all the independent farmers that go into mm. quote beef. Beef cannot say, you know what? We are a better source of protein. We have more bioavailable zinc, iron, selenium, than impossible meat. But impossible meat can say, we are so much better than a beef burger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so a couple- People yeah. you have to understand what we are up against. So one of my aha moments was, so the beef industry has a checkoff so that when a producer sells yes. an animal, a dollar goes into this fund. The USDA is the administrator of that. I believe half is supposed to come back to the state and a half goes to the national organization. Uh, if the if the national organization is going to use any of that money for dietary messaging, the USDA has to review it and approve it. And the NCBA has to pay for that review. 
Okay, so there's a conflict there. Number two, the, I believe it was the Texas Beef Council uh, put together um, some pamphlets saying, in a sense, in essence, that uh, lean beef belongs in the diets of your high cholesterol patients. Now, there's a whole lot there I could talk about, but that's what they're trying to do right there. I mean, that's there's a whole lot to talk about. I would like to go much further, but that little bit right there got them a deceptive advertising complaint from the PCRM, Physicians Committee for What's Responsible that? Medicine. Oh, oh God. Which is a vegan Wait, advocacy a group. I mean, come on. The, yes. It's a vegan yes. advocacy These are, this is group. These problems. And listen. <laughs> Most of their membership are not physicians. <laughs> they're <laughs> so. Right, right. But they're going to cast a spurt. laughing. This is all true, right? This is comical, but it's not. Right. And so, again, I typically don't talk about the politics of food, but. Peter has really done a great job in advocating for ruminants in their place in, you know, grain. What do you call it? Grass-based and what do you call it? Grass-based Something health. that you coined a term. It's grass-based. Grass-based health. Grass health. Yeah. And I commend you for doing this work because, again, in this this conversation, so this podcast has you know two kinds of people on it. It has number one innovators and experts in their fields, MD, PhDs, really just high level individuals. And then the other uh, individuals that come on the show are individuals that have had extraordinarily um, challenging or just monumental life experiences. And so, Peter, you really fall into this category of being an exceptional expert in your field and being a wonderful science communicator as it relates to what are we even talking about as it relates to health and wellness. And again, you bring a lot of sense and you also bring in the animal agricultural aspect of it, which is critical to understand as we begin to bridge the gap. And also the other thing that I'm so grateful that you highlighted is really this policy this policy, this kind of agenda, where it makes things very difficult for a consumer, a family member, um, just someone in the lay public to understand. And thank you. I know that I feel very grateful that you were willing to spend some time with me. And I know that the listener is going to get a lot out of this work and this discussion. So thank you so much. You have had such an amazing impact on so many, and I, I'm really, really grateful. Well, thank you. Um, I I really appreciate that, um, and you know, thank you for what you're doing to help individuals. I know that it's not always easy. Um, you know, what's that thing? You know, you're over the target when you start getting flack, um, but. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we know, then we have a responsibility to communicate that information. Um, people say that we can't feed the world, you know, a, a high animal source food diet. You know, my I turn that around. I say we must. 
we have to find a way to do this. And we can. In the 60s and 70s, we had a green revolution. And that was, you know, said to save a billion people from starvation when that was a quarter of humanity. Today, we've got well over 40% of humanity that's malnourished uh, in, in various forms. And it's, you know, now, you know, eight some billion heading up toward 10 ultimately. Um, and so I've been advocating for what I call a ruminant revolution. We have to find a way to globally and appropriately improve ruminant animal agriculture wherever that takes place. There's some wonderful things happening. I'm getting introduced to people around the world. Um, so I think we have really good news. We need to feel better about what we find we need to do to improve our own health. You know, because when you improve your health, you are improving the world. And that may be the most meaningful thing any of us can do, right? Is is ourselves, our families, our communities. And then maybe that spreads from there. Um, a tipping point may only be 25%, not 50. So if we get, you know, 26% of people understanding, I'm pretty sure the market's going to respond. <laughs> you know, there's going to be somebody that mm -hmm. says, oh, yeah, okay, here's, here's a place for us to go. And, and as I say, I, I know the vast majority of humanity would very much like to have the, the situation that we currently live in. Um, so I, I thank you for the opportunity. I, I welcome contact from anyone who wants to talk about specific issues or has comments or questions or observations. Um, you know, I, as I said earlier, I'm just trying to be a good pipe here. I, I know people who know a lot more about ruminant animal agriculture and forage agronomy than I do. And I know an awful lot of people that know a great deal more about human health and nutrition than I do. I'm just trying to, you know, sort of uh, build bridges between those disciplines. So if, if there's a way I can do that more effectively, please let me know. I think you're doing amazing. I, I know that you're doing amazing. And I'm really grateful for the time. I'm going to link where people can find you. You're a wonderful resource and so well read. I appreciate you willing to hang out and get interviewed and also interrupted. And um, we'll say it's because of the delay. But I again, I am so grateful. You're on the right path. We have it's wonderful to hear from other individuals in the scientific community that, uh, again, this is not an agenda to talk about this or bring to the forefront. What you're saying is that if an individual has the capacity, they have a responsibility to highlight that and, and you do that. So thank you so much, Peter. I am really looking forward to this episode and airing it and we will be in touch. Thank you again. Thank you. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. 
The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition. They may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.